So today we're continuing with our eight essential elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series. Do we have any of these that aren't folded? Okay. We could save one for me in the future that's not folded. I can get at it a little better. All right, so we've been uh, in this series. This is the 49th lesson. We are looking at uh, in, a, in a day when, when the fad has become progressively to have shorter and shorter and shorter presentations of the gospel with just some bare skeletal points and and uh and and of course the christianity at large has become reductionist somewhat gnostic uh antinomian etc uh what we're trying to do is give kind of a, a super full account of the gospel and this is pretty full i mean we are uh at element five out of the eight elements and we sh- We'll probably finish today with element five, and uh, we're at 49 weeks. Almost, we've been on this almost a full year. I know I went back and looked, and we started in the middle of May last year. So, um, we're going to keep going with uh, element five, which is Jesus Christ, the only mediator. We've been looking at Christology. Jesus is the only bridge. He's the only solution. We've been looking not at just the traditional things you would look at in Christology, what you might call the ontological aspects of Christology, that is ontology being the study of being, but the economic aspects, that is the study of his ministry. And, you know, when you study the Trinity, they divide things into what they call the ontological attributes, that is, who is God? Three persons, one being, uh, that sort of thing, that God is immutable, he's loving, all-knowing, eternal, outside and above time, just, all, all the attributes of God uh, is the ontology of God, that is the being of God. But then when you study the Trinity in terms of their, their ministry among one another, which ultimately leads to their ministry in the earth in terms of working out God's eternal decrees, that's called the economic Trinity. So, We've actually been since the eighth week on this Christology thing. I guess uh, Z takes us through 26 plus 4, or plus 3, I think. So we've been on about 21 weeks. We've been looking at the ministry of Jesus Christ. Like, uh, what does he do in relation to the Father and the Son? What have the Father and the Son sent him to do? And what is his ministry in the church, his ministry in the earth, and so forth? What was his ministry to Israel, and so forth? If you look uh, about just past the halfway mark, uh, there's some book recommendations, and th- these books will help you understand the subjects we studied last week, which is uh, the second coming of Christ, and this week, a-, a subject that's inextricably intertwined with the second coming of Christ is the eternal judgment of Christ. Uh, one of the things John has pointed out to us a number of times in a few series as he did is that one of the missing elements in today's gospel is that if in the book of Acts, there is no presentations of the gospel that don't include a warning of, of Christ being the judge of all the earth, of, of, of impending judgment. And there are no summaries of the gospel in Ephesians, Galatians, Romans, etc., that don't stress that. In fact, Paul starts his great treatise on the gospel in Romans after summarizing in verse, you know, the first 15 verses is his salutation, his greeting, 
Then in verse 16 and 17, he gives you an overview of what he's going to say. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God and the salvation to the Jew first and also the Greek and so forth. I left out to everyone who believes. Um, but then in verse 18, he starts into it with the very first line is, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, there's, it's very popular today to have uh, in certain certain even large denominational sections of the church uh, claim there is no wrath of God. Uh, the seeker-sensitive movement has made it a kind of a major policy to just ignore that and to keep away from that and so forth. And, and it does build more, you know, bigger churches with better finances. But the problem is, is that Paul, when addressing the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he said, I did not shrink back from declaring to you all parts of the counsel of God and everything that would be profitable. And as hopefully we're going to see today, understanding some real things about God's judgment is a very helpful thing in your life. It will help you a great deal. And in fact... Uh, in order to sin, you actually have to go through a deception process where you convince yourself that the consequences will be less than the sin, that it, the wages won't be death. And uh, you have to go through a whole deception process to deny uh, the, 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 your, your fatherly relationship with God in order to, to commit any sin. <clears throat> and so... Uh, understanding what we're going to talk about today is probably one of the most helpful sanctifying things in your life because it's just not worth it. And, you know, one of my favorite memories of my kids growing up was I used to play a lot of softball in the backyard with my daughter Carla. And there's a corner where there was a fence she would pitch to me and and I hit her ground balls, and that was all pretty well and good, except I would also throw her fly balls, and the goal of throwing fly balls, once you, you know, take, I was so old, it took me 10 or 15 minutes of fly balls before my arm was warmed up enough to really start zinging them way up there and, and making her run for them, and one time I zung one up there and thought she'd have to run a little ways, but I soon began to realize that was over the fence and it was going to land on the car <laughs> and it did and it broke the windshield and uh, so we found out after that that it was really worth it to drive to the park and, and hit the softball there <laughs> so because there you know there are consequences and uh, they're eventually inescapable so let's get into this um Look at Roman numeral 4, which is toward the bottom of uh, the first page. And uh, we're going to look at eternal judgment, and we're going to look at the fact that it has a present aspect. This moment, this day, God is judging. Uh, ongoingly, he is judging. That's one of the great things. You can count on his covenant faithfulness, and part of all covenants are there are requirements for obedience and in there are sanctions of blessings for, for, for obedience and, and sanctions or chastisements or disciplines for disobedience. Now, we're going to hopefully understand that for the true Christian, they're quite different than how they are in the world. And we're, hopefully we're going to see that as we go. So, uh, just to start off with, just to show you that these are considered foundational, Hebrews 6, 1 and 2 from last week. 
therefore leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ. So he's talking to, uh, in, if you go back to Hebrews 5, 11 through the end of the chapter, he's saying by now you ought to be teachers and you have need of someone to tell you the elementary principles again and solid food is for the mature who through practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And after this verse, he's going to say in verse 3, uh, we'll, we will go on beyond these elementary t- principles if God permits us to. And then in verse 4, he starts warning them that if they don't grow up, it, God's not going to be just put up with that forever. It's, uh, you know, Hebrews was actually a controversial book even in the first century because it has some pretty uh, difficult things to swallow about God's judgments in in. Uh, in our lives so, as Christians. So anyway, right in the middle of that, when he says to leave the elementary principles, he reminds us of what they are. And he says they, they are laying a foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith toward God, of instructions about baptisms, of laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. We, we summarized those a little bit last week. You should thoroughly understand all those subjects <clears throat> from a biblical point of view. We noted that the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed says that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And hopefully, if you're in Christ today, you're the living. If you're not in Christ today, you're the dead. It's as simple as that. It's not talking about those who are physically living and those who are physically dead. In John 5, Jesus says, A time is coming and already is. When the dead, and he's talking about those who are not reconciled to God, will hear my voice. The, the, the essence of being born again is to be able to begin to experience regularly and often the voice and presence and power of the Holy Spirit in your life. If you're not experiencing the power of God in your life, then you yet need to seek him in, a, in an introductory way. And if you've been, tasted the power of God in your life and now you've lost it, that's even more alarming in some ways. So uh, Matthew 25, if Matthew 24 and 25 is Matthew's more, uh, more complete version of, the, of Jesus' sermon from the Mount of Olives, or the it's sometimes called the Mount Olive Address or whatever. Uh, you know, Mark's version is not as complete. Luke's version is not as complete. But uh, in, in it, Jesus is clearly, um, l- like they did in the Old Testament when they stood on two mountains, Mount Gerz, what, I forget what it was, in my, it, what was it? Gerzim, and what was the other one? Ebel, right? And they pronounced, you know, they were, God commanded half of them to pronounce the jan- sanctions. Jesus is following that model on purpose. He's, he's doing it prophetically so people will remember this. And he's pronouncing judgment on Mount Zion, on Jerusalem, on the temple, which is, ma- is mounted on mountain. And he's doing it from across the valley in the, on the Mount of Olives. Uh, let's go, go back and listen to my mountains in Matthew uh, which was three different, the whole thing about mountains was three parts of the kingdom of God series. So, um, but Jesus also takes up the subject of the final judgment in Matthew 25, especially in these last 15 verses. Now, some other key verses, uh, we covered that one last week. You can read it for yourself. 
because I want to keep moving on and get through the material today. In John 5, 22 through 27, I've just got 22 there, but it says, for even the Father judges, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. So that's something you need to understand. All through the Bible, the Bible's talking about how the Son, Hebrews 1, is the express image of the, of the Father. Jesus says, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me, and so forth. So it's not like when the Bible calls God the judge, that it's, you know, Jesus is fully God, but the Father has given the judgment into the Son. But flip over and you're going to see some other fascinating things. John 12, 44 through 50. Again, I only, I, I, when, I, when I give you a larger reference than the actual words that I've printed, I'm trying to tell you if you, if you, you know, I, I grew up in a time in the Lord where I was taught in the church I grew up in is you take these home and you go over them for an hour or so every week. I, I would dare to say that very few people probably do that in our day and age, and it would revolutionize your Christian walk if you did so. If you took the time, not just to listen to the podcast again, but to look up all the scriptures and think on them and meditate on them because they're, you know, God has given us some really great Bible teachers in, the, in our church, and I fear we don't get enough out of them because we don't listen to, you know, to what they're saying and take notes on what they're saying and, and then review what they're saying. You, I, I never really get John's messages until the second or third time. When I've heard it the second and third time, then it really starts to click for me. And I'm like, wow, bam, I could have had a V8. You know, like, <laughs> it opens my mind and heart to, to, to seeing things about the Lord that I just didn't see as clearly as I needed to see. That's the point of having gifted teachers in your midst. Hopefully I do the same for you. So John 12, 44 through 50, I only have 47 and 48 there. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, Jesus says. Wait, wait, we just said the all judgment, when the Father gave all judgment to the Son. I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Should remind you of John three seventeen, the better verse than John three sixteen. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. You know, it's amazing to me how many Christians have to be encouraged to read their Bible. That that is there there's that's a oxymoron to say the least. It's uh it it doesn't even compute really. Because like it means you haven't really experienced the sun if you don't read the word because like who who would date someone that they never talked to? I've had in, you know, and um, Catherine and I have had the privilege of discipling young couples since um, 1970s, and we've had the privilege of, of sort of signing off on and saying, you're mature enough and ready to be married, uh, and do, in many cases doing the weddings of probably over 100 couples, none of whom have ever gotten a divorce, not one. And, uh, you know, one of, one of the constants is, we almost always have to encourage couples to slow down in this or that area, how much time they're spending or how physical they're getting or, or whatever. Because like, if you're, if you're attracted to each other and you're being called to be together from God, like you should, you know, have the temptation to spend too much time together. (laughs) That's just normal. And to talk too much. 
and to, and to stay up too late talking on the phone or <laughs> Skype or, or in person or whatever. And so, I mean, if, if you really have met Jesus, and, but you're not interested in his word, there's something wrong with that because the mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart. You can't say, oh, I want to love Jesus. Then, then, then find, find, find out how to love Jesus by have, having him speak to you through his word. It's just crazy that, that this is an issue in our day. And as Jason once defended me, I'll stop speaking about it when, when we have 100% of the people in the church that have bought into a culture of study. So we do have a considerable number of people, more than most American churches today, uh, that are really into a culture of biblical studies and so forth. That's a big part of our church culture. However, it's less than churches I pastored in the 70s and 80s and churches I was involved in. It's less than what is historically the norm for Protestant churches, especially Reformed Protestant churches. So, you know, and we can't let our culture conform us so much. Uh, we have to step out of the culture into biblical culture. Let's jump on. Genesis 18.25, which I really toyed with putting first, but I couldn't fit it on the front page. <laughs> um, Abraham, speaking of the father, uh, in, the, um, in the whole passage where, where a thing Theophany, where God appears to, to Abraham and tells him he's about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and uh, is it two persons of the Trinity or three that appear to him? When, whatever, somebody look in Genesis 18. But anyway, he's, he's uh, telling Abraham that he's going to uh, um, judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and Abraham does one of the great classic jobs of intercession in all the Bible. It, Rivals, uh, of course, not Jesus, but Jesus is, a great, is the greatest intercessor, but certainly Moses' intercessions, Nehemiah's intercessions, Ezra, Daniel's. Uh, Abraham does this fantastic job. Uh, he shows that he, 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 we know from this chapter why Jews are such good businessmen and negotiators because he just keeps bargaining God down. <laughs> he keeps, well, if there's 50 righteous men, will you spare them? <laughs> you know, and uh, he finally gets them down, I think, to five, but they couldn't find even five. But um, So Abraham, in starting this bargaining process, says this, far be it from you, God, to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked. So that, uh, and by the way, that's why God allowed Lot and his wife and daughters to get out. Unfortunately, uh, that didn't work out that great for any of them in the end, especially for Lot's wife in the short run. Um, uh, is to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Okay, so God is a judge. And although it's fashionable to only talk about the forgiveness of God and the love of God and so forth, it completely distorts who your God is to not talk about his holy, righteous judgment. Our God is a consuming fire. And you have not come to, uh, to some, you know, Hebrews tells us, 
You know, it's amazing how many Christians have this idea that God was a God of righteousness and wrath and judgment in the Old Testament, and, you know, the Mount Sinai was ablaze with smoke and everything. But, but Hebrews tells us about that passage in chapter 10 uh, that, you know, we have not come to Mount Sinai to a blazing smoke. We've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the new Jerusalem. We've come to, and, I, and then it goes on to say, for our God is a consuming fire. You know, the God of the New Testament killed Ananias and Sapphira. The God of the New Testament prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem. And if you haven't read Paradise Restored yet, please do. Uh, Probably in eschatology, a victory is a good step into reading Paradise Restored. But when you read Paradise Restored, take time to read the extra 100 pages of bonus material he gives you at the end that are taken from Josephus' writings and the description of the of what the Jews went through in that three and a half year period of tribulation. It's incredible. It's incredible. So, and that was all the work of a loving God. All right. So let's move on to point B here. Judgment is an attribute of God, and it's step four out of five of all God's creative covenantal processes. If you remember in Chapter 3 of the Kingdom of God series, we looked at a number of major themes, including God's eternal decree. Uh, Hebrews 13, 20 talks about the blood of the eternal covenant. And the Bible is one overall great eternal covenant being worked out in a succession of covenants where the recipients of the covenants fail and the Lord himself becomes their atonement and and causes the the covenant to be fulfilled and keeps... Despite their, their deserving of wrath and their getting wrath in incredible ways, yet in the end he keeps taking a, a remnant out to give them a better and more merciful covenant. Until the great covenant of the new covenant arrives. So, in God's processes, in, in Genesis 1 and 2, and in every process God does, when he judged... Uh, Egypt, etc. He goes through five steps. And you can look for these five steps all through your Bible. You'll see it over and over again. And you actually go through these five steps every day. Those of you who work in a job where it's more hands-on, you go through these steps at your machine or or in the, you know, your place of employment every day. Nathan, Paul, Stephen, uh, you guys go through these steps every every day. Over and over again. So the first one is that God takes hold of, he defines or directs his creation. Okay, and I'm going to use an analogy. Uh, today I have the great privilege of having uh, the John and Leah Gray and Stephen and Mariah coming over for dinner, right? And I've conned Stephen into cooking it for us. I'm providing the steaks and all that. And I bought all the ingredients yesterday and Stephen and Mariah are going to cook it so I, so I can read. And... Uh, and so Catherine can nap. And we're all going to eat dinner on the back porch. But when you go over to the Gray's house for dinner or you go over to uh, John and Emily's or Jason and Carla's, they will always offer you uh, some very clean, filtered, cold, nice, pure water and some good wine. And they'll never offer you crappy wine. They'll always offer you good wine. Right, so whether you want to talk, use the wine or the gla- glass of water is the analogy. If you're Baptist, you could maybe do the, the water. But in any case, 
the first thing they have done is they have selected the wine or they've gotten purified water. They've taken hold of it. They've bought it from a store. They've chilled it if it's a, if it's a white especially. Uh, if it's a red, maybe they've taken the, you know, the cork out and they've let, began to lead, let it breathe or what have you. Uh, of course, if it's water, you know, like Carla has these nice fancy water bottles that she puts the water in, whatever. They've, so first they've taken hold of it, right? That is, they define or direct where they're going. And, that, and God did that when he said, let there be. Let there be, let there be, let there be. Not like the Beatles, let it be. <laughs> uh, let there be light. God, uh, so when, when you're, you know, they take a wine glass out of the cupboard or, or whatever, right? You take hold of the ingredients. Then you restructure it. You work on it. You know, when you're working at a factory or working on a furnace, first you ha- get, take hold of your tools and your parts and so forth. Then you restructure it. Okay? So God separated the light from the darkness. You know, the, the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God was on the water, and then God began to do these five steps to it. He restructured it. He separated the light from the darkness, and he caused the lot dry land in the in the the seas to be separated and so forth. He's constantly restructuring it. Thirdly, he keeps and distributes his work. In other words, some things when you you know some some products of your labor you keep for yourself. Now, because we live in a economy where we substitute goods for for money, uh, you don't get to take the parts home usually. Although some jobs like computers, or whatever, you might take the leftover parts home or whatever. And some people have a great stash of old parts that they're gonna screw around with someday or something. But for the most part, you take a paycheck home, right? And uh, unfortunately, the, uh, the government steals from that paycheck. But then once you get what, the, after the government's done robbing you blind and you, you come out nearly half dead and with this feeble amount of money, you, you then tithe to the Lord and, then you, you, and you serve the brothers and you pay your rent and, you, you, and hopefully you save. You keep some and you spend some. And the trick is to keep more. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> the whole world system is trying to tell you you got to have a new everything. More expensive toys and whatever. So, now, for instance, God kept the Sabbath for himself. That's not to say only God uh, uh, celebrated the Sabbath. But, the, but we were told to keep the Sabbath holy unto the Lord. It belongs to him, not to us. It's the Lord's day. It's not my day. Right? And it's interesting, if you look at the foreshadowing of the Old Testament, what was the actual first day? The, the, the Lord's day is the first day of the week. The Sabbath in the Old Covenant was the last day celebrating the end of God's creative process in the old creation that fell and the new creation that he's bringing and has brought in Christ. The first day of the week is when Christ rose and the first day of the week is when the Lord's day, it's uh, which is kind of interesting how many people miss the Lord's day in our culture. It's kind of crazy, frankly. Um, so, um, 
But it's, if you think about it, Adam and Eve's first day, their first day, was the Lord's day. They weren't around for the whole week. <laughs> that was the start of a new week for them. And that's a foreshadowing of the new co- covenant, because they hadn't fallen yet. So, uh, God distributes, a, he, he kept the trees for himself. They weren't allowed to eat from the tree of life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, he only gave them commandments of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They would have been allowed to eat from the tree of life, but they didn't do so. And once they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he cut them off from the tree of life, and he kept that for himself. And he gave it back to us in Christ. So, who is the tree of life? Uh, he gave them the dominion fruit-bearing mandate, and so they were to multiply the fruit and give it away. Okay? The goal of working is to, is to, for, to make the company money and, the, and, and so that you can make yourself money. One of the craziest things that developed with the rise of, of a non-Christian culture in the late 1800s and the rise of social Darwinism and the, the idea that I should exploit my employees for all that I can get and so forth is, is a whole culture uh, that's contrary to biblical thinking. In biblical thinking, an owner of a company or in stock, you know, the stockholders would do what's best for their employees and for their customers because in the end, long run, that's how they're going to prosper. That's what a corpus is, like in a, in a corpus, corporation, in a body, like if your heart starts doing things that are bad for the rest of you, you know, that's why not, you know, that's why sinning against your body sexually and, and, thing, and taking in all kinds of crappy food that's killing you and so forth is such, it's, so, it, it's just whacked out. It's part of the fallenness of man. Because who would destroy the corporate, your body? Who would kill themselves? All sin is killing yourself. It's a type of suicide. And uh, it's, it's messed up. Right? Now, fourthly, God evaluates or judges his work. He always judges his work every day. So remember, three times in the first five days, he said, it's good. He stepped back and evaluated now, I don't know about you, but I'm a perfectionist, but I like, you know, I've made a really nice kitchen in upstairs in my house, and I still, you know, after, let's see, it's been 21 years ago, I still like to look around and go, wow, and I remember solving this problem and that problem, and and I remember cutting the the board for the... Uh, for the underneath the, the bay window when it was 10 below zero out and I couldn't get good cuts unless I took my gloves off and, and out in the garage. And, and uh, I remember every detail like that. Uh, it, what blows my mind is how many guys I know in the building and painting industry that don't even take pictures of their work, let alone just take 10 minutes to evaluate it. Like when you finish a job, like when you finish your homework, step back and enjoy it for a minute. Wow. 10 algebra problems, I got them all right. I'm sure I got them all right. I'm done. I'm going to, you know, speak in tongues for a few minutes or something to celebrate that I got to finish these things. I got them all right. I'm going to evaluate and judge it that it's good. I'm nutty about that kind of stuff. 
Now, on the seventh, on the sixth day, he said it was very good. Now, we use that uh, verse a lot to make one of the two points that really come out of that verse, and I need to make the second point for us today. The first point is that we use to bring people that have been raised up in that whole uh, evangelical fundamentalist Gnosticism that every that everything physical is bad and you can't drink wine and you know the only reason you know marriage exists is because we can't stop having sex so we, you know instead of seeing the high and holy estate that it is and in that whole you know like food is not to be enjoyed and you know so to understand that God made all the creating you know He made you spirit soul and body and He's saving you spirit soul and body and He has a will for your body as well as a will for your emotions and your mind and your on your emotional life and your relationships and all of that. And his will is to do that, to make it whole, to make it good, to make it function the way it was supposed to function before the fall, right? So we use that verse where he says, very good, to remind people that Adam and Eve were created naked, unashamed, and married, and it was only good until then. (laughs) After that, that's the day it was very good. Which, if you've been married, that's pretty good, pretty true. It's very good. Um, the thing we sometimes should have put more attention on is he used it to basically say it's finished. It's complete. You know, a project that's not done is not very good. My wife has had to endure so many of my projects that are not done. My whole life is never done. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, you know, the, the hardest thing about being a housewife is what? You make, you make the bed, then it gets undone again, right? Every day, it's every, always undone. You fix the towel rack, and the kid pulls the towel rack off the wall again. That's why I don't have dogs, cats, or any other thing that causes more undoneness. It's too much work. It's, I, I don't want their responsibility. So... Full approval of God requires completion. Remember when Samuel the prophet said to, to, to uh, Saul, incomplete obedience is disobedience. So many of us have this kind of Christian life where, well, I used to never read the word, and now I read the word one-third as much as God wants me to, and I've cut down on pornography from five times a week to three, Man, I'm really making progress. Not. <laughs> you're in or you're out. Incomplete obedience is disobedience. Right? So look what Jesus said in his high priestly prayer. His, this is one of the most holy, sacred parts of all of Scripture Right after John 13 to 16, which is John's version of the Last Supper, they go across the mountain, walk along to Kidron and uh, go across the river and into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays this high priestly prayer in verse 3, this is eternal life that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Verse 4, he says, I glorified you on earth. How? Did you glorify God today? Here's how you know. Having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Did you read what part of the word he wanted you to read? 
Did you study your biology as much as he wanted you to study your biology? Did you serve uh, your friend who needed his leaves raked as much as God wanted you to serve him? Or whatever. Did you do what God wanted you to do? I glorified you having accomplished the work that God... You know, some occasionally you could actually get a brother who did help mow the lawn and rake the leaves and shouldn't have. <laughs> because, now, that doesn't happen that often. But... Uh, <laughs> Maybe they should have been studying. Maybe they're just too relationally addicted, so they show up to everything all the time instead of ever having some great time alone with God. All right, so now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which we had with you before the world began. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about listening and what voices you're listening to. Remember, God told us uh, we, we like to think of Matthew three seventeen, where he says, this is my beloved son uh, in whom I'm well pleased. But remember in the Gospel of John, he also spoke audibly and he said, this is my beloved son. What's the rest of it? Listen to him. And that's what I hope to get to. If I, and I'm doing okay for time, I think, right? Is that clock right? Yeah. Move it back like 10 minutes, please. Uh, no. So um, uh, keep this listening thing in your mind. Okay, then he goes on, John 19, 30, he says on the cross, it is finished. Not like I did a half-ass partial job, right? But I did clean my room. <laughs> um, I, I, people tell me they swept the steps or whatever, and I look at it and go, Really? <laughs> Uh, it is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you've been saved through faith, not as a result of works, uh, so forth. And then he, um, in verse 10, goes on to say that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. See, what the modern church has done is they've made it either you start with performance and you end with performance, or you define grace in such a way that it doesn't end up in performance. But true grace will set you free to do the works of God and empower you. If you've really encountered Jesus, you'll start being more sanctified. You'll start being more filled with the Spirit. You'll start being more alive in Christ. And don't deceive yourself, the Bible says. For whatever you sow, you will reap. There is judgment. Now, keep in mind that in Matthew 3, 17, we're going to be getting to that. Now, the fifth step, just so you know, is that God enjoyed his creation. He, uh, he enjoyed the completed work, which was done and rested from all his work. You know, that's part of what it means to spend time with the Lord. You know, our culture is workaholics. or Our culture does two things, work and recreate. And we always have to have messages and electronics coming in our head and so forth. And uh, uh, I just read this a whole bunch of studies. I studied this a lot the last couple of days right, because of a book I'm reading and it referred to certain articles that I went on the internet and read and so forth. They actually did these studies where people uh, couldn't, couldn't be alone with no stimulus from an outside electronics and stuff for six minutes. And... These people had signed an affidavit that I think shocking myself 
would be a horrible, terrible thing to do. I've never done such thing as that. But they gave them a shocker, and they started to shock themselves because they would rather shock themselves than, have, than be alone with their thoughts or with God. See, the problem, one of the reasons people have trouble being alone is because you're listening to the wrong voices. We're gonna, hopefully we get enough time to get into this. And so when you get alone, like what happens whenever you stop, when there's no Facebook, there's no radio, there's no music on, there's no one can, you know, you turn off the phone, no one can get to you. You do what Jesus says, go into your inner room and, and pray quietly to the Father then you have to deal with what's really going on inside yourself. You have to find grace because you gotta, you got to take whatever guilt, whatever shame, whatever worries, whatever fears, uh, whatever unforgivenesses or animosities or whatever, that all has to be dealt with. And we'd rather just fill up our mind with chewing gum for the eyes, that's what video entertainment is, you know, then, then have to deal with quiet being quiet and alone with God. But I submit to you that you'll never get healthy until you get alone with God and you learn to do what I'm about to talk about, listen to the right voices. So let's move on to point C. Um, in the New Testament evaluation of his new creation, we're going to talk about true judgment, uh, present, ongoing, and final. So in Matthew 3, uh, Jesus comes to John, and there's a threefold witness of who Jesus is. First, John says, um, I need, have need to be baptized by you, and you do you come to me? John uh, talked about this in a sermon a month or two back. Um, you know, like John recognized he's the sinner. You're not the sinner. You're the holy one. I'm the sinner. What, what? You know, but he recognizes Christ. There's the first witness of Christ. Then the Spirit comes on Jesus like a dove and, and lands on him and lighting on him in this translation. And, and thirdly, uh, God the Father. So first there's John the Baptist who has the revelation because of this call of God on his life and the work of the Father and the Spirit in his life. Then the Holy Spirit bears witness to who he is by descending on him like a dove in his baptism in the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, the Father speaks audibly, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Now, my, what I want to submit to you is until you hear God say that to you over and over and over again, till that's the predominant voice in your life, you'll never overcome all your constant falling back into sins. And you have to choose what voice you're going to listen to. Because here's what God says of you. When in the word beloved in, in, in Matthew 3.17, I'm sorry, but I'm going to go over again. He predestined us to adoption as sons, or wait, uh, is agape, agape, agape etas, which is the adjective of agape eo from below. So I won't get into that too much. Look, read, read the word yourself as I'm talking about it. Ephesians 1.13, he predestined us. Now that's in the whole context, by the way, of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Uh, I'm starting in verse 5. But you need to read the whole section on your own and think on it, meditate on it. Listen to the voice of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 speaking to you. Like people go through this, I, well, I got my two chapters in. That's not the point. 
Listen to the voice of God. The mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart. And in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, and so many other places, you'll hear the voice of God. And you have so many other voices speaking to you that you can't make progress. A man with a demon is a man with voices. Urge for sex, urge for lust, urge for gluttony, urge for anger, urge for unforgiveness, urge to stay busy so he doesn't have to hear the voices in his head. Sometimes when I'm discipling guys, and especially really damaged young men, I, I can, I'm listening to how much of what I'm saying is actually getting through to their spirit and to their mind and turning on lights for them because they have so much noise in their head. And what I want to help you with today is a little bit is how to turn off that noise. Because here's what God is saying to you. He's saying that, uh, where were we? He predestined you as adoption in, uh, to adoption as sons. Wow. Before the world existed, he said, I'm going to adopt Logan Carr and Davion and Tim Kelly and Deanna Brown and Emily Weiss as my sons and daughters before you did anything good or bad. And when you did all the bad stuff, he didn't go, oh, jeez, he just reminds me of that Jacob guy, what a rascal he was. Or I'm, I think I'll just throw him out and take Esau instead. He didn't do that. He, he, didn't, he didn't, you know, like sometimes the voices in your head that are beating you up are not God's voice. So it says that uh, after he chose us for adoption, according to the kind intention of his will, did you ever hear that? Like, hear that? Like, God, like so many of us have things like, what if God wants me to marry an ugly girl? Or, or what, what, if God, what if God wants me to have a really bad job <laughs> that I can't stand? <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know? What if God wants me to marry some totally insensitive brutish guy that needs deodorant and mouthwash and... And he's learn how to have some social graces and a wardrobe or something. You, you know, like God's not mean. The kind intention of his will. Not if you're in Christ. All right, then he goes on to say, uh, I keep losing my spot, where am I? Uh, to, the, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed. You didn't pay for it. It was extravagant and free. Some of us know some generous people. Others of us know stingy people. And I always feel bad for stingy people. I actually would rather work with a guy, like there's some guys that I've had to work with that are too generous all the time. <laughs> and it's like you maybe aren't being very responsible in your stewardship to God to be so giving. So, now agapeo, agapeo is the verb form to welcome, to entertain, to be fond of, to love dearly. You know, have you ever, like if you like pop culture music, and like I like sometimes the old 60s stuff, some Motown stuff, and then I, I just always change all the love songs into like God and us. Instead of Sherry or whoever she is. <laughs> I never met anyone named Sherry anyway, but uh, <laughs> Jerry Cola. But, uh, you know, like God is saying you're his beloved. 
Have you ever heard the voice of God say that to you? You're his favorite. You're highly esteemed. You're highly valued. And I suggest that you've got to start with grace every day. I, you know, we preach high standards in this church, but I try to always remind you, you, you can't even want to do the high standards until you have this. And you can't have that unless you get alone with God and, you know, use your prayer language, what Bible study, whatever it takes, quiet your spirit and shut up the other voices. What Jesus did in the wilderness is he told the other voices to shut up. And they were all about identity. If you're the son of God, the voices you hear, well, how long are you going to continue being a blankety blank and stupid that does this? You know, like you got to start, you got to say, I am that, but Christ died and it's finished. And I'm a new creature in Christ. And this new creation in Christ is going to rise up and slay that old wicked man. He's the new creature is the David. Your old nature is the Goliath. And you've and you got to get past being like the armies of Israel that were listening to a Goliath because what he was speaking was lies. We, we saw how full of content it was when a little shepherd boy took one stone and boop, because he was mocking the armies of the living God. And David had it right. He didn't go in, in his own name or his own strength or for his own fame. He said, this guy has taunted the armies of the living God. And God's going to beat the crap out of them. And you need to talk to your flesh like that. Now, point D. I'm, I'm not going to be able to talk about present, ongoing, and final judgment, which I hope you'll study that, because God's judgments are every day. But for the Christian, let's listen to this. Both his present and his ongoing judgments, this is a thing you need to study, it's called the ways of the Lord. God will chastise his Christians most severely. Because once you receive Christ and you go through the waters of baptism, you are his son. And God is not about, you'll understand this more when you have a little Samuel running around or whatever, you're not about to let your son grow up with all kind of problems. You're just not going to do it. You're going to get him the best education and the best emotional health and the best social, and you're going to teach, you know, if you, understand, if you know the Lord, you're going to understand that the real issue is rebellion, and you're going to get that out of him at an early age, and, and he's going to grow up a happy, content, boundaried guy. And that's what God wants to do for you. So my final, I'm, my final verse is going to be Isaiah 54 through 6. We're going to be 10 minutes behind schedule today, but... A lot of the people don't come till 20 till or quarter till anyway, um, which is a shame. But um, here's my question. To whom are you listening? To whom are you going to listen? There are three false voices, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they, will, they don't just speak to you about lusting or whatever. They speak to you if you, uh, indeed are you the son of God. They speak trying to speak the opposite of who you are in Christ. And you'll never get set free. 
once you begin to understand who you are in Christ, you'll no longer be bitter and unforgiving and quick to judge other people and so forth because you'll understand how much he forgave you. And you'll understand, as John did a great message some, a couple years ago, that um, forgiveness is the prerequisite of discipleship. Right? How can you take God's forgiveness and then not be really gracious, quick to forgive, and so forth? So, Isaiah 50, verse 4 through 6, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples. How do you get the tongue of disciples? In other words, how does what comes out of you be an accurate representation of the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the, the person of Jesus Christ? How does that happen? So that you can sustain the weary one with a word. It happens this way. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. Now, I could multiply verses that would fill up both pages about what the Bible says about being careful what you listen to. One of the reasons it's a problem that we listen to more video and YouTube and TV and everything than we actually listen to the Word of God is because you, it's, it's important what you listen to. What you listen to will shape your destiny. And then you can't just read the word to get your chapters. You've got to hear the heart of God speaking to you. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And it's finished. And I don't care that you fell down again. I'm going to get you back up. If you've never watched any, uh, you know, Nathan or any of these young parents that we, you know, we have so many young families that we had to build a second nursery, <laughs> you know, um, if you've never watched them as their kids learn how to walk, they don't go like, I knew he'd fall down. If he, you know, like the kid, you know, of course they fall down the first few times and stuff. But, you know, most, par most parents will kind of bore you with like, did you see my kid walked and, you know, and he was only six months old and your kid didn't walk till he was nine months old. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and, and I, I always tell parents, don't worry about it. If they walk when they're 14 months old, that's good. Every kid has his own pace. If they're not walking when they're two years old, then you got problems to work on. Um, now, that is, a, by the way, a prophecy of Jesus. That's why I put in a little bit of the other verse. And we're, I, I'm not going to have time to get into the fact that God's judgment is present, ongoing, and so forth. But for the Christian, it's a chastisement so that you may share in his holiness. It's not the same as the judgment that's waiting the people outside of Christ. God is never, his wrath may endure for a night, the Bible says, but his a shout of mercy comes in the morning. Uh, yeah, God can take Christians through some pretty severe things because he, he loves you and he wants you to share in his life and his holiness. But it's not so that he can do you bad in the end. It's always so he can do you good in the end. Amen.